It's a sad day in Cleveland. It is the last home game being coached by Tito, who has been the beloved manager of the Cleveland Guardians. He's given it his all. He's a celebrated guy. We will miss him in the dugout. I hope he gets a victory for his last home game. It's today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, and Lisa Garvin. And man, there was a lot of big news overnight. Do our eyes deceive us? Do we awaken this morning to the news that the Ohio Redistricting Commission has adopted new maps with both Democrats and Republicans in support? Lisa, this seemed impossible not 24 hours ago. How did it happen? It happened after a long evening of closed-door negotiations between the Democrats and the Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission, only two Democrats on that seven-member board. But they agreed last night to maps that give a Republican advantage in 61 of 99 House seats and 23 of 33 Senate seats. This is more favorable than the current maps that we used in last November's election. That was uh, 56 Six of 99 seats in, in the House and 18 of 33 in the Senate. But the Republicans took way more than that in the last election. They took 67 House seats and 26 Senate seats. So the map didn't really help there. This is the largest majority of either party since one member districting in the 1960s in that last election. So Auditor Keith Faber, who's also a commission member, says that there are 11 House and four Senate districts that are toss-ups in the new maps. House Minority Leader Allison Russo says it's really extremely difficult in this current environment to agree on a map. I think that's why they kind of said, okay, let's do it now. GOP members, she said, waited until the last minute to pass the map. She says the process is still a sham and it's rigged. Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio, also on the commission, said the maps that were passed were more fair, more competitive races than what the GOP was considering. And she said that they worked really, really hard to try and find some sort of compromise here. I'm going to stop there. I'm astounded that they made the compromise and I give them credit because what they had come out with a week ago was bad. This isn't great. It's not really reflective of Ohio, but it's way better than anybody had a hope for. And it sounds like the Republicans did the right thing. They went to the Democrats and said, we really want you to vote for this. You're not going to get everything you want, but we're willing to meet you this far. And it was enough. I I do wonder I'm speculating here. But I do wonder whether this is the work of Keith Faber. It's a seven-member commission. It includes Frank LaRose, who would never do anything to compromise because we've seen what he's about. I don't think Mike DeWine has had a heavy hand in it. The the Senate president, Matt Huffman, he's not a compromiser. Jason Stevens, not really a compromiser. You got to think somebody said, look, let's do the right thing. Let's not lord over Ohio our dominance Let's reach out. And Keith Faber is a smart guy, and my bet is he's the person who did it. We're going to try and find out. Yeah, he talked about, you know, he says that they were trying to achieve this magical mystery ratio. He said it was really important in this latest round of map making to ensure that communities are represented by someone who shares their interests. And he says that they tend to cluster geographically. Uh, There was no public input on these past maps, even though they had four public hearings at the very last minute. But Mike Halaiko, who is a retired school administrator in Perry County, he testified in one of the hearings. He said, 
in my in the public's mind, this is a sham of a bipartisan commission. It's also unclear how long the maps will last. Faber says it's an open constitutional question. The courts will likely decide. Some people say because it's a bipartisan approval, it will be eight years. But there are others who say it's only for two years, no matter who votes for it. I can't see how it's not going to be eight years, although we are talking about a constitutional amendment to change how we do it. Look, people can say that this wasn't fair, but the Democrats didn't have to vote on it. They could have voted no. They voted yes. That That's that's compromise. I mean, they mm-hmm. got there. We inter- When Keith Faber was uh, in for his endorsement interview when he ran for election um, last time, it was after the failure of this commission to do constitutional maps and reach agreement. And we grilled him on it. And of all the people we talked to, he was the most pragmatic talking about the challenges that they faced. He was also convinced we wouldn't endorse him. And we did uh, <laughs> much to his surprise, I'm sure. Uh, look, I, he's a smart guy. And even though his nickname when he was in the legislature was Darth Faber, Something changed here. He was kind of the chairman of this commission this time around. And I'm betting he's the guy that came up with a suggestion for a compromise. We'll do our damnedest to find out. It's a big day, though, for Republicans and Democrats in Columbus to agree on something. High fives. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We began this next journey fully five years ago when Courtney and reporter Adam Faris were writing about the death-inducing mismanagement of the Cuyahoga County Jail. It's been a long time coming to what happened Tuesday, a giant leap forward. Courtney, what is it? Finally, 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 Cuyahoga County Council has signed off on a new jail site. At their Tuesday night meeting, council voted eight to three, approving this plan to buy the jail site that's been talked about for a while now out in Garfield Heights. It's 72 acres. It's at Granger Road and Transportation Boulevard. And that price tag's about, like I said, $39 million. The latest plans under County Executive Chris Ronane have been for a basically a huge complex there. It would include a jail, a sheriff's administration building, parking, potentially a diversion center, re-entry, job training facilities, all these things Ronane has talked about for this land. And last night, he, he really touted this, this purchase as one that puts the health and wellness of prisoners first. You know, with the added support of functions on that campus, he envisions, Ronane said oh, mate, inmates can return healthier than, than when, they, when they go there. Now, this site purchase draws down, uh, you know, the majority of the $54 million or so the county set aside of American Rescue Plan Act funding for the jail purchase. But of course, then there's the matter of paying for the jail, which is expected to be $750 million. It looks like the county potentially has a plan to fund it. We've seen lots of debate about extending the sales tax indefinitely, but there was legislation that 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 was put forth last night that's headed to committee that would extend the quarter percent sales tax, not indefinitely, but it would extend the quarter percent sales tax to 2067 to pay for it. <laughs> Look, uh, we we haven't been favorable to some of the nonsense that's come out of the Ronade administration, but he did his homework on this site. This was the smart move. What we couldn't fathom is why there were members of the county council that were opposing it. This was the no-brainer. There was no other alternative that came close to solving all the problems this did. 
And we sensed that it was pettiness, especially on the, the, like people like Sonny Simon, because Chris Ronane had embarrassed them during his campaign about their desire to build it on a toxic, a toxic um, reclaimed site. The, the, the vote was overwhelming in the end. Sonny Simon voted against it with two others. But most of council got together and did the right thing. We got to applaud this. This was a huge need for the county. We have to treat prisoners humanely. And the right thing happened. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how they got all the votes together. I hope we get some insight into that. But it was a resounding vote in favor of doing the right thing. Yeah, the, the council members who represent kind of the, the northeast side of the county voted against it. That includes Cheryl Stevens, Sonny Simon, Von Conwell, who, you know, covers much of the city with her district. But, you know, then we heard from Councilman Scott Tuma, who's who's over in the Parma area. And and he said the county's in crisis mode here. It needs to move forward. Councilman Dale Miller, you know, kind of definitely addressed protests from advocates who have been repeatedly pushing the county not to build a new jail, saying we need that money for for social services and mental health care and not to lock people up. And Dale Miller, you know, agrees with that in principle, but he said it's just it's not feasible. We need a jail. We need to house people now. So they did come together. It moved forward. You know, like you said, there was this alternative idea possibly to build a jail on a site in Cleveland off Kirby Avenue. Sonny Simon was not pleased last night that the council did not consider that, that the results of that study was not made public before this vote happened. So like you said, there's still... Because it's a terrible idea. It's got multiple owners. There's some toxicity. And that was just a bad idea from the get-go compared to the one they went on. One of the dumbest arguments that came from the opponents of this was that the county is buying land, that some of which will be used for drainage ponds. Anybody that does construction of a big project has to figure out a way to drain the site so that the site doesn't flood. Drainage ponds are a part of any major project. So, of course, they need land for them. The idea that they wouldn't buy the land where the drainage ponds are, how, <laughs> where would the water go? It was just one of those you you, you kind of were twisting your head thinking, what are you what are you thinking here? That made no sense. Yeah. And, and that ties into how big this plot is. Like I said, it's 72 acres. And Sonny Simon was arguing that that we didn't we didn't need a plot of land that big. But Ronane envisions this giant complex. So they want the land to be able to do a little bit more with their with their construction here. I will say those plans include a potential diversion center out there. But that that, that leaves me scratching my head. That isn't that was envisioned as not being next to a jail. So it wouldn't appear as punitive to people who go there. So I'm still curious why he envisions putting a diversion center out there. Well, it, but it's a big enough campus and you can probably design it in such a way where you keep them separate, but there is some logic to having things closer together. I, it, I just, I was surprised how quickly this seemed to come together after having so many hurdles along the way. It's a big win for Chris Ronane, and it's a big win for the council for getting it together and overcoming the pettiness that was getting in the way of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the voters with issue one, in which he was trying to convince Ohioans to make the gerrymandered legislature their overlords by giving up the right to amend the Constitution. 
We also covered it when he and his elected colleagues flouted the Constitution by refusing to draw fair legislative maps and defying the Ohio Supreme Court. We covered all this stuff aggressively. Huffman and company didn't like the way we covered it. So, Laura, what are they doing in response? They're starting their own media organization. They, they're going to have a podcast. They're going to have stories. And they're saying that there's a left-wing bias across the mastheads of the state's largest newspapers. So not just us, not just the podcast, but they're, they're accusing a wide swath of media. And they say that they're going to have their own online newsroom called On the Record, The Views the News Excludes. And I feel like this conversation is going to feel a little bit of a funhouse mirror because it's going to keep <laughs> referring back to us and this podcast and them and their version of how they see it. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of meta. Well, the funniest thing for me, uh, we heard about the podcast yesterday and you know, if, if elected leaders are using tax dollars to create a propaganda machine, it's new. So we're going to do a story about it, but I didn't realize when we assigned the story that they had started their news site, in June. And so Jake Zuckerman called me for a quote because they vilify me repeatedly on this site. And as we're talking, he goes, were, were you aware of this? Because this goes back to June. And I said, not until you just told me about it, which is hilarious because I would like to think that we in our newsroom and we on this podcast are about as tied into the news as anybody else because it's our job. And if we don't know about it, this is really the tree falling in the woods. I mean, apparently they had ripped into me by name over and over again, and I had no idea how effective are they as communicators. It just doesn't doesn't make any sense. So you were not feeling those barbs that they were throwing. <laughs> it, it makes me feel like, remember when Ed Fitzgerald was running, I think it was probably for governor, and he started his own set of weekly newspapers in the suburbs of right. Cleveland. And they all, I mean, they were like eight page broadsheets and we looked at them and we wrote about it, but they had zero impact. Look, it, the, Armin Budish did this. He got he was very thin-skinned about our coverage, and so he started creating these videos that were direct to the people that I don't think anybody watched. The, the this the, the best analogy I have for this is our coverage of the Browns. Our Browns audience is our biggest audience segment. People rely on our coverage. They trust our coverage. Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, Ira Harris, Ashley Bastock, Terry Pluto. They're trusted. And so people look to them for honest analysis. The Browns have their own news site. Nobody trusts it because the Browns have a vested interest. Who are you going to believe in the coverage of Deshaun Watson? The Browns or Cleveland.com? It's, it's the exact same thing here. People come to us in large numbers for our coverage of what's going on in Columbus because we don't have a horse in the race. We cover it because that's what we do. Who are you going to believe? Us or the Republicans that were behind issue one and were trying to bamboozle the whole state? It's going to have zero credibility and it's going to have zero audience, but they're squandering tax dollars to do it. Well, and they're calling it a news site, kind of like Fox <laughs> News calling themselves news. Are they going to have reporters in the field, you know, getting the other side of the story? No, they're going to use as their source material stuff from Cleveland.com, The Plain Dealer, Dispatch, whatever. Well, I, and, and I like that in one point they say that 
Chris, your accusation of partisan gerrymandering has no evidence. It's like, <laughs> hello, the Supreme Court told you it was illegal partisan gerrymandering. So yeah, there's your proof. They really took umbrage at the idea when I kept saying that because they were defying the Supreme Court, they should be held in contempt of court and put and in put orange, in orange jumpsuits. jumpsuits. They, they did really, not like the orange jumpsuits. They did yeah. not like that line at all, although I still think that would have solved this. If they would have jailed them in orange jumpsuits and said, you don't come out until you come up with fair maps, they would have come up with them. Um, I, I do want to say, look, I, we throw a lot of mud and when people throw mud back at us, we accept it gracefully. The criticism they're making to me, all fine, all good, have at it. I do take serious exception to one of their attacks, which is on our forum section. They submitted uh, an op-ed that had a falsehood in it that, that said that the Democrats are the party that says men can get pregnant. And Elizabeth Sullivan enforces our standards in the forum section rigorously. And one of them is you got to be accurate. So we said, take that line out or we're not running it. And they refused to take it out. I think that was their plan all along so that they could say we're defending free speech. But the reason our forum section is so respected and so well read is that Elizabeth Sullivan enforces rigorous standards. To say it's partisan is preposterous. And I know it because every Friday mm -hmm. I participate in a meeting with a half dozen other people where we go over the content of the forum section piece by piece to make sure that it's even, that there are equal number of pieces written from the left and from the right and neutrally. There is nothing about that section that is partisan and that attack is completely false. If you want to have an op-ed, write the truth. We're not going to run falsehoods. Maybe Ted Dieten will take it up in his column this week. <laughs> Which we run every week, even though we're so lefty. Anyway, I uh, it'll be interesting to see what their podcast numbers are like after they've been doing it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll have you as a guest. Chris. Who's who's actually going to listen to it? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sherrod Brown, J.D. Vance, and Mike DeWine cannot get a federal disaster declaration for East Palestine. So now they want a declaration of a public health emergency. Lisa, what's the difference? Well, it basically helps affected residents in East Palestine that are exposed to health hazards. This comes under what's called the Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act of 1980. And in a letter to EPA Administrator Michael Regan, Senator Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance said they should invoke this act because it would unlock added resources, including access to Medicare coverage for long-term care of East Palestine residents whose health has been affected by that February train wreck. Despite results, though, from monitoring air, water, and soil showing that they are safe, Brown and Vance are still concerned about long-term seepage of toxic chemicals into the water table and development of serious medical conditions down the line. So they say, we really need to use every tool available. I hope, if this happens, that they keep track of whatever it costs so that the railroad has to pay for it. I mean, I, it's a great idea to make sure that the people who live there are getting every bit of medical attention that they need because we don't know what the, the short and long-term effects of this train wreck are. But Norfolk Southern caused this. So the public dime should not have to pay for it. They should pay for the whole thing. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting, you know, and of course, this is just a request. It hasn't been granted yet. So it'll be interesting to see what the uh, rationale is for either approving it or not approving it. Yeah, and whether there's going to be a reimbursement clause. 
Uh, interesting how much advocacy continues to take place for the people affected by that train wreck. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked last week about a Rocky River Elementary School principal who was in some hot water. It's not going to be charged with a felony, it now looks like, but that doesn't mean he's in the clear, does it, Courtney? Yeah, they're still uh, looking at misdemeanor charges for this Rocky River principal. We're talking here about Heath Horton. He's the principal of Kensington Intermediate School, but he was the former vice principal at Rocky River High. And, you know, we heard from County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley saying, you know, they didn't find that his conduct rose to the level of felonies. Even so, um, you know, O'Malley said Horton's contact was disturbing. So basically what, what the prosecutors concluded here was that these students had alleged that they, they drank alcohol, smoked cigars, and exchanged porn videos at Horton's Illyria home. But they were all over the age of 18 years old when this occurred. So O'Malley found no cause to charge him with felonies because of that age line, you know. But county prosecutors have sent the case back to Rocky River Police, which intend to send it back to O'Leary Police to determine whether misdemeanor charges of furnishing alcohol to minors are warranted here. What's ridiculous about this case is that this guy's attorney, Larry Zuckerman, is making it all about the felony charges and and the persecution of this guy. But this is really about right and wrong. And this is an educator who was meeting with the former students of the school and engaging in some pretty questionable contact with them. No parent of a student wants an educator like that anywhere near their kids. I mean, as an educator, you've got to meet the higher standards. And that's what this is about. It's does the school district have cause to fire this guy? Laura, you live in that district. Do you want this guy anywhere near your kids? And I do have a kid at that school. I had, you know, two kids at that school while he was principal. And I've got to say this story has gotten texted to me like three times in the last 24 hours and parents completely outraged. It's all over the community page. And they're paying attention to that quote where he says, I look forward to resuming you know, his principalship. <laughs> yeah. And it's from the lawyer. And parents are like, no way, this cannot happen. Like, and, and, and it is a quote from his lawyer, right? This is not coming from the school district. The school district is doing their own investigation. And people are saying, look, he has to be certified as a teacher. He has to have a license. And all of these things that he's accused of are enough to get your license taken away. The inappropriate behavior with the students, the alcohol. So Parents are understandably upset about this person, you know, about Dr. Horton being in charge of their kids, especially, I mean, these are third to fifth graders that he was the principal of when this came out. What What's alleged to have happened is when he was the assistant principal of the high school. And so, yeah, I mean, people are upset about it. We've even had messages from the superintendent that's like, this is ongoing. We're not going to discuss it at a school board meeting because I think they're getting inundated with parents just saying, he cannot come back here. I do not want him near my children. But there are two standards. I mean, there is the criminal standard. Yes. And he was careful that they were 18 and over. Which Although 18-year-olds takes... cannot drink alcohol. Right. Let's no, just so that makes it a misdemeanor case if they choose to bring it. But there's also the idea that school principals and newspaper editors and mayors and others have to be held Coaches. to a high yeah. standard. Yeah. You, you know, you are... You're a leader. You're a role and, model. Yeah. So I, I I, just don't see how he comes back. And the attorney trying to make this just about the criminal part is um, he's missing the point. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. We know Ohio is one of the worst in the country for supporting child care. We've discussed it quite a bit. It's kind of shocking because we have a governor says he's all about the children. And we've also showed how it is a detriment to our economy. Laura, what are the other states doing that Ohio is not? Well, they're doing a lot, actually. And I picked just seven that were talking about new big ideas. Other states have older programs, like Georgia has this free all-day pre-kindergarten, um, and they've been doing it for a while. Other states may have smaller pilot programs, but it, it wasn't hard to find this information out there. So it's not like it's not like you don't know what other schools or states are doing. So Colorado, the voters there in 2020 passed an, an increase in their nicotine and tobacco tax for universal pre K. They have 15 hours a week for every four-year-old. And they're going to decide in November whether they want to improve that and up the funding. In Kentucky, there's $15 million the state's using to match employers' contribution to child care costs. That's based on family household income. That's similar to what Michigan is doing. They have what's called a tri-share program. So the employer, the state, and the parents equally fund their ch- the child care. So it's split three ways. That started with a pilot with only $2.5 million, so not a lot of money, and it's already expanded. Missouri's got a whole lot more money, $60 million in federal stimulus money for grants to expand or create new child care centers. In New Mexico, there were voters that approved a constitutional amendment last fall, spending millions of dollars from the state's oil and gas fund on early childhood education. North Dakota spending $66 million on child care services. And Wisconsin has something called a Partner Up program that's using $10 million in stimulus money to give businesses grants to buy child care slots. And I think I, yeah, yeah. So there's all these great ideas and they're involving business in them. Like Missouri with their money, they have to have matches from community partners or businesses so that when the state money runs out, they still got someone to help support it. They're thinking creatively about solving this very important question. You would think that with all the publicity we're giving to this, and it's starting to get a lot more national attention, the Washington Post, the New York Times have been doing stories about this issue as well, that Ohio would start to get it. Steve Stivers of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce has come out and said, we need to address this. It's just the elected elected leaders are not paying attention, even though everybody else is starting to. Yeah. And this is not just a, it's nice for families. Wouldn't it be nice kind of thing? This is an economic boost. The studies are very clear. Every public dollar spent on high quality, early childhood education and childcare provides a four to $9 return. And the reason you get that is because of increased tax revenue with more parents working and kids who are having a really good start in life end up getting better jobs. There's decreased government spending on social support programs because again, these kids are getting a good start in life. Um, there's less on justice services and more families feel encouraged to have kids. People are saying the number one reason they're not having a child or more children is because of the child care burden. And we need kids to be born to eventually grow up and take these jobs so that retirees can have social security benefits and there are people to take the jobs that people leave. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's not in Northeast Ohio, but Amazon is spending one huge amount of money in the state over the next six years. Lisa, what is it building and where? Yeah, Amazon Web Services is going to spend $3.5 billion to build new 
data centers in New Albany, and that's after an agreement with city officials there. There will be five new data centers. They will take up about 250,000 square feet. Um, this includes the centers and the support buildings, and it should be complete by 2030. This is only the first part, though. Amazon Web Services' Merle Madrid says this is just the first step in an eventual plan for 29 data centers in the New Albany area, with a total of $7.8 billion in invested in those projects. Um, they uh, will get tax exemptions, a 100% tax exemption for the first 15 years, and then a 75% ex exemption for the next 15 after that. But Amazon Web Services will pay the city a minimum of $352,750 a year. That'll increase to $1.1 million a year by 2031. That's according to the Columbus Dispatch. Is it is are these employment centers or is it more just kind of big chip centers? They are not. Of course, they they create hundreds of construction jobs. But in the end, these five data centers will only employ about 105 full time workers with a payroll of about nine million dollars. OK, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Before we go. Let's go back to the first conversation we had. Maureen O'Connor, the former chief justice, has rung in on the new legislative maps, and she is not happy. She's calling it a partisan gerrymander, and this is her quote. What happened last night has real consequences when maps are gerrymandered to protect politicians. It means citizens can't hold their politicians accountable. The voters of Ohio should be picking their politicians, not the other way around. She's condemning the whole thing, saying that this was not done in good faith, and that's why voters next November should change the way we draw maps. Powerful statements from the former Chief Justice. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Laura, Courtney, and Lisa for the lively discussion. We'll be back Thursday. Thursday.